Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. In terms of big ideas for the country, I'd say that Boris Johnson in a way is worse than Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown did actually want to do a few big things on the economy. I really don't know, as someone who follows politics incredibly closely, what Boris Johnson's really big idea is. The dust is settling around the Prime Minister. But is it the calm before the storm? I'm Christopher Hope, Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics. And today, I have a tour de force of impassioned guests for you listeners, each one determined to have their say about the future of Boris Johnson and his leadership. Later, we'll hear from broadcasting legend Alistair Stewart, who thinks that the so-called mainstream media have it in for the PM, and Charles Lewington, a former director of communications for the Tories in the 1990s, on why it's wrong to draw parallels between Boris Johnson's current predicament and John Major. But first... This week has seen MPs and Conservative commentators squaring up to give their tuppence on whether the PM's days are numbered. And so we thought we'd bring that fight to Chopper's politics. In the blue corner, we have Conservative commentator and former aide to Boris Johnson, Tim Montgomery. And in the other slightly different shade of blue corner, we have one of Boris Johnson's closest allies, I find it utterly bizarre that a small number of MPs think that they can overrule that vote, that that vote of 14 million people. It's quite something that they think they can do that. No, not that one, but Northern Ireland Minister Connor Burns, MP for Bournemouth West and one of Boris Johnson's oldest friends in politics, who I asked my regular spot in the Red Lion pub for a chat. Connor Burns, Northern Ireland Minister, welcome to Chopper's Politics. It's great to have you here in the pub on a busy day. Pleased to be here. You are one of Boris Johnson's longest and best friends in politics. Is it over for the PM? No. What's over is the confidence vote, uh, which the Prime Minister won. And colleagues had an opportunity to vent frustration, send a message, whatever other thing they wanted to do. They did that. Uh, He won. He won decisively. And I think the sense, the mood of the party is we want to come now together. This is a week that started with division and I hope is ending in a degree of unity where the Prime Minister is talking about the domestic agenda, about delivery, about cracking on with turbocharged pace to implement the manifesto in which he won such a decisive majority only two and a half years ago, the biggest landslide since Margaret Thatcher in 1987 for the Conservative Party. You say decisively. Of course, I'll say to you, four in ten MPs didn't back him. How is that decisive? Well, I always remember Mrs Thatcher saying that the Labour Party nationalised aircraft and shipbuilding in the 1970s on a majority of one. Uh, She described that as a very questionable one too. (laughs) Um, He won. The the rules were clear. Um, He won. And I think genuinely the mood is that people want to now 
put that behind us. Division spells disaster for the party at the next election. Um, you look at the opposition. You look at Keir Starmer, who had a horrific Prime Minister's Question Time, which should have been for him in the context of this week an open goal. Uh, and he didn't just miss the goal. He wasn't even on the pitch. The government is now completely and totally refocused on delivery for the British people. And that is the way you rebuild trust. How's his mood? How is he? You were with him, I think. I'm pretty sure I read you were with him anyway on Sunday, Monday, through this drama. So I had a brief chat with the PM on Sunday evening before uh, the vote. Uh, and I'll tell you this, I probably shouldn't talk about this. Oh, why not? He talked to me not about the leadership vote. He talked to me about where we were on the Northern Irish Protocol, the challenges getting power sharing back up and running, where we were with the, the, the draft bill on the legislation that we're going to introduce. And I was genuine. I, I, I know this PM well. Really? I, Didn't mention I have an enormous fondness for him, which is not a, not a state secret, I think. And I was actually genuinely, pleasantly surprised that when he saw me, he wanted to talk about government business. He wanted to talk about the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland, how we get functioning government back up and running, how we protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And that was like an hour before the the leadership ballot result came in. Goodness me. Did you mention reshuffle to you then? No. Genuinely, I can say hand on heart that nobody within the number 10 machine has mentioned anything about reshuffles. You wouldn't want to see Jeremy Hunt as your Chancellor? I think the Prime Minister's got an obligation, as always, to look at the talent available within the Parliamentary Party to build a broad-based team that includes, that is embracing, encompassing, and a team that is committed with him to deliver that manifesto of 2019 on which he won such a thunderous mandate. So not saying no to Jeremy Hunt. You're, you're not, not, not Prime Minister, unfair. This is way above my pay grade. We also have at the Prime Minister's pleasure. Of course. Has he thought about resigning at any point? I mean, it's not worth a candle. I mean, he's not really appreciated by four and ten of his colleagues. Why carry on? The Prime Minister believed in 2018-19 that there needed to be a decisive recalibration of how we uh, approach politics um, to get Brexit done, to break the, the impasse that we had reached. And I believed, as many others did at the time, that he was the person to do it. I think he still has fidelity to that manifesto that he put before the British people. And he believes in uh, the mandate of the parliament. And he will be judged by the electorate come the next general election. And that's a five-year parliament or whatever it might be. Yep. And if he wins the next election, he serves a following term, five years. I do not get any sense in, in my dealings with him that this is a guy whose appetite for serving the British people is in any way diminished. I think he's completely and totally dedicated to delivering on the promises he made to the British people. And I fully expect him to not just fight the next election, but to win it handsomely. There's plenty of time for the Prime Minister to show the British people what difference it makes having him in number 10. And I think many, many people will uh, not just expect, but demand that he... So he's here for the, the long term, election. and you'd expect him to serve a full five years as Prime Minister if he wins the next election. Look, I think as, as David Cameron and Tony Blair both would probably acknowledge in retrospect, once you start to define your departure date, yes. you lose authority. This Prime Minister is here to fight the next election, to win the next election, and to lead Britain and the Conservative Party going forward. What must he do now to repair relations with four in ten of your colleagues? How can he change, or should he not change, and should they change? Delivery. I sense an appetite for the party to come together. Uh, I've been very struck by a number of colleagues who 
had been quite outspoken in their criticisms of the PM, who said, look, the result is the result. We acknowledge and accept it. We now need uh, to unite. Divided parties don't win general elections. I think the the only way, there is no magic wand for any government in midterm, particularly a party that's been in power already for 12 years in various incarnations. What is needed is a period of calm, competent delivery, showing the British people the difference it makes having a Conservative government led by Boris Johnson in power in the House of Commons and in Downing Street. And you know, the, the significant speech the Prime Minister has made this week is not the speech he made to the 1922 committee. It's the speech he's, he's making this week about housing and how we offer the dream of home ownership and make that a reality for many more people in we're, our country. We're 12 years into Tory government and we're still talking about the delivering more homes for young people. I mean, how long do you need to get that right? Well, in politics, as Margaret Thatcher once truly observed, there are no final victories. And I, you know, I was very conscious a couple of weeks ago, I was at the memorial service for my predecessor's predecessor, John Eden, um, who died two years ago. And because of COVID, we couldn't have the memorial service <clears> until then. Yeah, he was a minister when I was born. And he grappled with the challenges of the British people then. We grapple with them now. When I'm long gone, others will be here grappling with the same challenges. It's up to each government, each generation, to do their best for the British people. What's going on? In terms of, there's been some criticism this week from Lee Anderson, your colleague, about the BBC. And maybe let's widen it to other broadcasters obsessing about Partygate. Do you think they are obsessed by Partygate? I think there is. I'm not sure it's the job of politicians to to criticise the, the free press. When I was on the, the Cultural Media and Sports Select Committee, I was an outspoken champion of press freedom. I was very sceptical about some of the, for example, the Leveson proposals. The press have their job to do, we have our job to do. What I think it is fair to say is that there can be the appearance of a disconnect between what members of the public are talking about and what some people in SW1, in this village of Westminster, are talking about. And when I'm out and about on Saturdays, on my own, delivering my parliamentary survey, walking around in talking Bournemouth. to constituents in my constituency of Bournemouth, my home of Bournemouth. I won't be disingenuous. Some do talk about the, the, the parties in in number 10, the events in number 10. Most people are talking about things like getting their kids into the school of their choice, uh, an elderly relative waiting for an operation, connectivity and transport, things that people really, really care about in their day-to-day lives. This weekend's a big weekend for you because early next week, the government sets out its plans to reform the Northern Ireland Protocol in Northern Ireland, but making it easier for, for businesses there to trade with Great Britain from Northern Ireland. Will it land well with the European Union? Look, I think the first thing to say on this is that we want a negotiated solution to this with the, with the Commission. But Vice President Secevic has been very clear that he cannot go beyond his existing mandate. We have explained to him why that mandate doesn't give us, we think, the space to find the the landing zone on this. Essentially what we want to try and do, and this is based on 18 months almost of lived experience of the protocol, real data about goods movements within these islands, we want to find a way that respects the absolutely legitimate ambition of the EU to protect their single market, but also critically at the same time protects Northern Ireland's place uh, within the integrity of the United Kingdom single market. So essentially what we're saying is there should be 
no checks on goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. The 200 or so companies who've stopped supplying to Northern Ireland from Great Britain can re-engage in, in that activity. And then we'll have checks on stuff going into the Irish Republic. We'll have a trusted trader scheme. We'll have criminal penalties for those who breach it. We'll do real-time uh, data sharing with the EU. We're convinced there's a landing zone. But we cannot just sit and wait for the Commission to broaden or embrace a new mandate. Uh, so we will introduce legislation. We still, during the passage of that legislation, are absolutely open to talks with the EU to find a settlement. We'll wait and see what the European Union say. But this idea about dual regulation, where companies have to follow both UK and EU rules, how will that apply in Northern Ireland? Well, that's very straightforward. So a company that is only trading within the United Kingdom marketplace do not need to follow European uh, Union rules. Those companies that are supplying into the Republic of Ireland and therefore into the uh, European single market would. That is affording companies the choice uh, to decide what regulatory regime Aren't they want. you doubling to regulation on companies? No, right? quite the reverse. If they are supplying into the EU, they will follow the EU rules, uh, regulations, directives in any case. With labelling, etc. If they are not, if they're only supplying uh, trading within the United Kingdom's internal market, they are not obliged to follow those rules. Why not be firmer and just say only UK rules apply in Northern Ireland? Because we do, absolutely, and this is a point that sometimes is lost in the debate, we absolutely accept the legitimacy of the EU's strictures about protecting the single market. And we acknowledge We're a good the neighbour. We're a good neighbour. Totally. We acknowledge the reality of the island of Ireland having two jurisdictions, one, the Republic of Ireland a European Union member state and one part, Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, that is no longer um, an EU member state. And we therefore recognise there needs to be special provisions for the island of Ireland. Is this Northern Ireland protocol bill, maybe out on Monday, is that about getting Brexit finally done? No, it's about delivering for the people of Northern Ireland. We, we've got to face the reality here that there is nobody within the unionist designation in the newly elected assembly in Stormont who thinks the protocol, as it is currently being interpreted and applied, is working. Those reservations, by the way, are shared on a practical sense with others outside the Unionist delegation. I've had uh, members of parliament and assembly members from nationalist parties who have raised concerns about companies in their constituencies who are affected uh, in supply chain terms. But we cannot dodge the fact that until we resolve this, we will not have functioning devolved government in Northern Ireland and functioning devolved government and assembly and executive in Northern Ireland. They are the, the fruits, the, the birthing of the Good Friday Agreement. And unless we have functioning government, the Good Friday Agreement itself is in peril. And next April, we mark the 25th anniversary of Belfast Good Friday. We mark 25 years of relative peace, increased prosperity, a society in Northern Ireland transformed from the one I was born into 50 years ago this September, which had troops on the streets and the police behind bulletproof glassed vehicles. And we imperil that enormous progress unless we sort out the Northern Ireland. And just finally, you've been, I hear on the grapevine, you've been talking to various um, international statesmen about what you've been up to in Northern Ireland. I've been talking to a lot of people uh, about... Tony Blair, I hear? You hear rumours. Wasn't Sir Humphrey once explained to Bernard that Rumours in this place are often premature facts. I have met Tony Blair. Um, and I Recently? To this week. And he, he by the way, his foundation uh, produced an incredibly good report talking about the challenges of the implementation of the protocol. Not about ripping it up, tearing it apart, 
discarding it about because it is cross-party. That's the point. Recalibrating. It. It's not a political its thing. Interpretation and application. And and Tony Blair was in the role of a dispassionate elder statesman. Was clear that it would be helpful if the EU broadened their mandate to help us find a landing zone. I also spoke last week when I or two weeks ago when I was in the US to Hillary Clinton, who mm. is Chancellor of Queen's University in Belfast, who completely gets that cross-community consent is central to the functioning of devolved government in Northern Ireland and that the technical fixes that we need to put in place to fix this protocol are essential. And will the DUP buy this? Will it be enough to make them reform the Stormont government? So what I would say to you on that, people ask, are we doing this for the DUP? I'm an openly gay man born in North Belfast to a Catholic nationalist family. I do nothing for the DUP. I do things for Northern Ireland. I do things that are right for the United Kingdom. We will fix this protocol. We will fix the technical challenges. And then it's up for others to respond. But our message to the DUP is really clear. We negotiate as the United Kingdom with the Commission. We as the United Kingdom government do legislation through Parliament. They should be back in government delivering for the people of Northern Ireland. They should be back around the table. Conor Burns, Northern Ireland Minister, thank you for joining us this week on a busy week on Travels Politics. Thank you. Thank you. Now, as promised, we can go to the other corner of the boxing ring. Here's Tim Montgomery, former aide to Boris Johnson and a founding editor of Conservative Home, the most accurate weather vane of Tory party grassroots feeling out there on the internet. Tim Montgomery, welcome to Chubbles Politics. We're back in the pub in the red line. This is for our fight, isn't it? Yeah, well, we had a fight on, on, on Twitter. Yeah, you, you called me out on Twitter, didn't you? Because I was saying that Christmas was the last chance that the Tories can change leader. And you said, I strongly disagree. And then you said, you like my shirt, because I was on telly at the time. <laughs> it was quite a shirt, It was a shirt. Yeah, was unfortunately, a people are not going to be able to uh, identify yeah. it on the podcast. No, but it clashed with my, my wife's curtains. But anyway, <laughs> on to the, the issue of the day, is I think you can't change leader after Christmas. You disagree. Why is that? Well, look, the example I gave when I um, tweeted at you, I think in a relatively friendly way, um, was that, uh, you know, Jacinda Ahern, not a model politically yeah. for the Conservative Party, but right at the last New minute. New Zealand's leader. Yeah, um, now New Zealand Prime Minister. She became leader of her Labour Party in New Zealand just weeks before a New Zealand election. And now, obviously, she became leader unopposed. The difficulty is you can't do it quite on the eve of an election because I doubt there will be a coronation for the next Tory leader mm-hmm. but i don't see any reason why actually well, the last possible date for the general election uh, would be december 2024 i don't think the tories will want to leave it that long but they could leave it till the spring of 2024 without too much of a problem i don't think so actually i think we've got 18 months in which we could change the tory leader so I, I, do you tell me why you think christmas is the last possible time because it's different. I mean, was, was Ardern prime minister when she was left leader? Or... No, she was leader of the opposition. That's yeah. the difference. So when you when you can be swift and change opposition leader in the same way the Tories did with Michael Howard replacing Ian Duncan Smith about 18 months before the 2005 general election, I would argue that prime minister is so much more different to that. You're basically battling about ideas in opposition because you're not doing that. You're running a country when you're prime minister. For me, time is the friend of Boris Johnson. The longer this stuff gets pushed out, I do think a massive crisis is coming in the autumn with this Privileges Committee. That is massively underpriced, I think, mm-hmm. in risk to Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. But I just can't see how you change leader next year. Mm. I'd really 
I hear what you say, as they, as they say, but I really don't understand the distinction between Prime Minister and Leader of the Opposition. I think voters, you know, it has been the great thing the Tories have done over the last 12 years, is although they have been in power in some form for 12 years, they keep reinventing themselves. Now, I think after a while, the electorate will perhaps see through that, and you can't do it too often. But for the time being, I think it's very possible at the last minute for the Conservatives to change leader and finally address the Boris Johnson question, which the party didn't quite do on Monday this week. The question about Johnson, he hasn't, he hasn't changed at all. And maybe it's the party that's changed because back in 2019, it was Boris Johnson was a solution to, to getting Brexit done, to dealing with Jeremy Corbyn, appealing to other parts of the country that other beers or other provinces cannot reach. Maybe he has said the same, but the party has changed and wants a more sober leader. I don't think that's right. Look, because the party made a big gamble. When, how, well, were we fourth or fifth in the European elections in um, 2019? You were nearly last. It was only nearly last, yeah. To Nigel Farage winning. Yeah, the Liberal Democrats <laughs> beat second. us. I think the Greens almost beat us. You know, it really was a humiliating result. The Tories took a gamble that year. They were always sort of had their reservations about Boris Johnson. Was he a man of integrity? Would he do the job of Prime Minister properly? But the party was in such a low place, it was willing to roll the dice. And frankly, it came off big time. We won that general election. We got Brexit over the line. We we, we stopped Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader. We we sorted out Brexit. But, 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 I think it was a bargain. And in return, we expected Boris Johnson to perhaps step up up his game. Step up. Yeah. And I saw something when I briefly worked for him as his social justice advisor. When was that again? That was the end of 19, wasn't it? For that a few was 19, weeks. yeah, a little bit of period. And what I liked about him, because I, I was part of his sort of leadership campaign for a number of years before. I had lots of private, intimate meetings with him. And I saw a man who was really willing to listen to different parts of the Conservative coalition, to really listen to different groups. And then... What I saw, I think, after that victory was an almost an attitude that he could walk on water. Mm. I think that victory... An went, arrogance about yeah, them. I think that victory went to his head. And he, I wrote him a long memo talking about what I saw as the dysfunction in 10 Downing Street, the lack of obvious chain of command, the lack of mission, the lack of people with grey hair. That was shortly after the victory. Shortly after the victory. And he basically told me that he'd won the election and I was a bit cheeky to be giving him advice. And that was fine, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to walk away. And COVID, of course, was you know, a, a massive issue for any government to face. But I do think it's used as an excuse mm-hmm. um, by this government for the fact that a majority of 80, this should have been a transformational Conservative government. How often does a government have this kind of majority to do the kind of reforms it's always wanted to do? And yes, this Conservative government, as um, the BBC and others keep saying, has been in power for 12 years now. But actually, only four of those years, it's had a majority. And in those years, it really has sort of drifted, as I think Jesse Norman's really powerful letter. Seven years, 2015, 2022, seven years, a majority. 2015, they had a brief majority, then Theresa May lost it. I suppose so, yeah. And so actually, it is quite a narrow period. And and of course, if you've only, even if you've got a narrow majority, you actually can't do difficult things like housing because you'll lose that narrow majority. So that's the biggest... It's indi- a time for boldness is now. Well, is it then- now? That, that's, that, you see, is the other problem is I would desperately like the Conservative Party to be bold, but it should have been at the start of this parliament because if you don't really get your difficult things done in those early years, you get closer to the well, election. I remember Dominic Cummings gathering journalists around him in, in, as a party in late 2019 and number 10, telling everybody that planning was the big thing for next year. We are going to 
properly address planning, get building. Now, of course, Boris Johnson is in, is in Blackpool making a speech about housing t- uh, today, Thursday, but nothing's happened. And we are literally two and a half years after that event, aren't we, when that pledge came from Cummings and nothing happened. And this, I think, is the hardest and most important issue for the Conservative Party to crack because we all know that the existing Conservative vote, their homeowners, and they don't understandably want ugly houses not supported by infrastructure to be built in their backyard. But I tell you what, you, you know, to put it really crudely, Chris, yeah. you make more Labour voters by increasing the number of people dependent upon benefits. You make more Conservative voters by giving more people the chance to own their own homes. You know, owning their own homes turns people into stakeholders in community, makes them more conservative in every way. And if we don't, <laughs> didn't take the opportunity of a majority of 80 to start ensuring that millions of young people, and of course, they're the grandkids and the kids of Conservative voters. It's not as though there's one set of NIMBYs and there's one set of aspirants. These groups of people mix. They have concern for each other. If we're not going to use the majority of 80 to really tackle that question, and we haven't, when are we ever going to tackle that question? Do you think, as I do, that he started off as Tony Blair in 2019 and now he's Gordon Brown? He looks exhausted. It, It feels a tired administration. Or do you think the ideas are there but they're just, they're just not doing them. I'll always prefer a Conservative Prime Minister to a Labour Prime Minister. So things like we've had the appointment of Catherine Burblesing or the announcement of her formal start as head of the Social Mobility Commission. There are all sorts of things happening like that in government that I welcome. But overall, in terms of big ideas for the country, I'd say that Boris Johnson in a way is worse than Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown did actually want to do a few big things on the economy. I don't know. I really don't know, as someone who follows politics incredibly closely, what Boris Johnson's really big idea is. Levelling up is probably the closest thing you have to it. But actually, there's not a great deal of money going into it. We're getting new um, leisure centres in Stoke, but we're not getting you know, a fundamental sort of rebalancing of the economy. So it's deeply disappointing. Rather than electability, rather than the ethical questions, which I don't dismiss, it's the drift the mission drift of this government that uh, I find is, is the biggest indictment of the Prime Minister. He wants to be world king as, a, as a, a child. He's on the throne and apparently he's run out of things to do or have no idea what to do next. And you do see it, don't you, on at any more marginal policy areas. No one, no one has any idea what Boris thinks on things. So there's almost like a policy land grab for stuff. And then, of course, at a time of economic crisis... The biggest area of drift is the economy. What the economic policy of this government is, I have no idea either. Well, I was outside the 1922 committee last night in Parliament and Richie Sunak told MPs in the room behind me that, you know, when they have spare money, it'll go on tax cuts. That is the policy. But is that bold enough? You know, national insurance reverse, who knows? We start off here about changing leaders. Let's go back to that before we go uh, to Montgomery. Why dump a proven election winner? Are you not storing up a kind of Thatcher problem on the back benches that dogged the Tories uh, when you were heavily involved with the party through, through the 90s and into the early 2000s? Well, look, my fundamental opinion on Boris Johnson hasn't changed since Monday when I actively urged Conservative MPs to, to, to vote against him. And um, that hasn't changed. And I don't expect my opinion to be confounded that he is fundamentally unsuited to continuing as Prime Minister. But, 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 I think I now have to give him a chance. I think we all have to give him a chance. You can't say you have a 52%, 38% Brexit referendum result and respect that, and then we have a vote where his leadership is affirmed, albeit a little bit narrowly, and say it doesn't matter. Of course it matters. I think we now should give the Prime Minister 
some space, some time, some opportunity to perhaps respond to some of the criticisms I've just been sharing with you, Chris, and prove that I'm wrong. I would love to be proven wrong by him. But would the party survive by dumping Johnson, a man who who won in Labour London twice, who had never been defeated in, in a serious election in his life, who won the biggest majority since 1987 in 2019 for a Tory leader, dropping him to the back benches in between parliaments and creating this ball of anger and resentment, which, which will be a rallying cause for anyone concerned about whoever follows him? One of the things I worried about a great deal about, I think there's two aspects to this. First of all is I do worry about how many of the last few prime ministers have been got rid of in the middle of a parliament rather than at a general election by voters. Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, May, you know, Boris would be the fifth in, you know, reasonable succession. And I think that... They weren't forced out there, were they? So Blair went willingly, Cameron went willingly, or after reversal at the referendum... May didn't go willingly. I think the same principle, though, that basically applies, that people voted in an election for a certain prime minister. And we're not a presidential system, of course, I know that. But in reality, there's an awful lot... That's what I would worry about. Yeah. And so there's that element where it just happens, full stop. But then I think there's the added thing. There's I don't think this is an administration that will go lightly. And, you know, I think some of the behaviour of Nadine Doris and Jacob Rees-Mogg to internal critics in the party has been disgraceful. Um, And I think what you get is they will say to those red wall voters that they've been betrayed, that the Tory party has betrayed them. So it won't just be that there'll be an event that won't be interpreted. There'll be an event where sections of the Tory party, which I regard as Team Boris now, not Team Tory, will actually try and damage the Conservative Party's prospects amongst those voters. And so there's a double danger in not sort of respecting Monday's vote and continuing the campaign to get rid of Boris Johnson. So I'm declaring peace, at least for uh, at least for a little while. And all while. that said, yes or no, will you fight the next election? Will Boris Johnson be a Tory leader? No. Tim Montgomery, terrific chat. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. My pleasure. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking to GB News host and all-round broadcasting legend Alistair Stewart about why he thinks the main broadcasters are not so impartial when it comes to Boris Johnson. Right after this. Welcome to the Vaughnie and Tuffers Cricket Club podcast. Uh, Phil, we've got a podcast. In with the uh, the Telegraph, the Daily Tea have taken us on board. Don't know what a podcast is, but I'll tell you something, this one is going to be a belter. There's not only me and Tuffers, there's Ben from the Telegraph. Ben? Hello, Hello. Ben. What are we going to do on this podcast? Well, it's going to be a celebration of cricket in all its glory and absurdity. From interviews with ECB bigwigs, uh, and we'll be phoning up village viral sensations as well. Oh, I like the sound of them. What's a village viral sensation? (laughs) I think what it is, Phil, what happens is, these days, a lot gets filmed. So when something happens, Mm -hmm. they then put it on social media, and it becomes viral. Oh, well, thank God for that. Because I've been in a few village changing rooms, and they were pretty viral. (laughs) We'll be analysing the international game and debating the best filling for a tea sandwich. Brie and cranberry. Oh, give over. Oh, come Give on. over. So join me, Michael Vaughan, and Phil Tufnell and yes. Ben Wright from The Telegraph. We've got Robert Key, what a the managing director of English cricket on our first podcast. Doesn't get any bigger than that. Well, it probably it? does. Get the Queen. <laughs> Make sure you follow us in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss the first episode and the rest of the series.
Now, this week, veteran broadcaster and all-round news legend Alistair Stewart wrote an interesting article in the online magazine Spiked, titled The Mainstream Media Can't Even Hide Their Anti-Boris Bias Anymore. And as Alistair was a member once of the so-called mainstream media for decades, as the trusted face of ITN News, I thought it was time to give him a call to find out how he came to this conclusion. Alistair Stewart, a veteran broadcaster, now at GB News. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Good to see you, Christopher. Now, you've been writing a very interesting article this week for Spiked, the online magazine, about, well, the words MSM, public service broadcasters, salivating over Boris Johnson's difficulties. What do you mean by that? Don't all journalists salivate over a good story? Well, they do indeed, but you know better than I do. And here's a perfect example of it. You operate at The Telegraph and your competitors in other fine newspapers under one set of rules. You can be as partial as you want, Christopher Hope, (laughs) or as partial as your owners want to be uh, and ditto the mail, the mirror and, and everybody else in print. Broadcasting, public service broadcasting simply can't. We are obliged in law, whether it's the the Royal Charter for the BBC or the Broadcasting Act for Independent Television News, to be impartial, to be balanced. And we have to do that. And there's Ofcom there in the background that is supposed to police it all. And what I've spotted, and I think I trace it back to the departure of Dominic Cummings more than Brexit, although there is an argument that it's about Brexit too, that there was a conscious desire on the part of the mainstream public service broadcasters to oust the prime minister. Simple as that. And that desire, whether it was put to them by enemies of the prime minister or whether it was grown from their own desires, I genuinely don't know. But the constant flow of briefings, the constant flow of information, uh, some of it tittle-tattle, some of it tangible, just got to the point where it began to annoy me. And then bit by bit, the Glee, and that's the word salivation coming in, the glee when things turned badly for the prime minister was sort of almost fireworks in the air. And seldom did you hear the likes of, I don't know, Connor Burns and people like that saying, yes, but on the other hand, here's the defence, here's uh, our justification. It just seemed to me to be one way traffic and was being rather too much enjoyed by people. Well, you're right right here. You don't remember a time when the PM statements and explanations were reported with such sniggering dripping with tones of disbelief and incredulity. I mean, our job is to raise the eyebrow and be cynical, isn't it, about what our leaders say to us. We, you know, we think about the Jeremy Paxman reference. Why is this bastard lying to me? That kind of thought about the fight, yes. which may have undermined <laughs> politics in, in its own way. Although Paxman does say he couldn't think of the second question. And I interviewed Michael Howard recently. Yes. He wasn't remotely upset about That's it. That's when he said 14 but, no, you're times. you're right. It is, it, and, and, and to be crystal clear, I, like you and any other proper grown-up journalist, I'm very interested in what the Prime Minister stands accused of, not least over the lockdown and the parties and the Sue Gray report. And that is not only worthy of reporting, but it's deserving and important that it be reported because it does speak to the character of the man. It does speak to the methodology of government. And that's right and proper to probe it. But the starting premise should not be, why is this lying bastard lying to me? The premise should be, we think that something has gone amiss here. We've either seen it ourselves or we have heard it in our chats with colleagues uh, and we're damn well going to probe it. But we're going to probe it in a balanced and impartial way. 
And, and that, I fear, uh, over recent times has become sadly and dangerously lacking. What has fueled that? Is it uh, having these broadcasters on Twitter allowed to give their own view on things? Or is it something else? I think social media does have a lot to do with it. And spoke to one or two fairly senior colleagues at the BBC, friends of mine, who were looking at it. Tim Davey, when he came in as the new director general, was deeply concerned. And here's the really brilliant nub of it. And you, you strike upon it with your question. And that is, if you hold a certain journalistic office with one of these great broadcasting organisations, you cannot be one thing on broadcast television, news or current affairs, and something else or someone else on social media, because you are still that person. And those words still come from your pen, from your fingertips and from your brain. And therefore, if you try and do the partial thing on social media and then try to pretend to be impartial on air, we all know. And it's a nonsense. It, It clearly isn't. And there are rules and they are there and they're supposed to be adhered to. But in the case of Emily Maitlis, and Emily, for whom I have a great regard, was hauled over the coals a couple of times for stuff that she said uh, on air on Newsnight. And yet that debate continues to flow uh, on social media. And I just think it needs a little bit more policing. It's not to say, and let's make sure nobody is in any doubt at all listening to this conversation, that neither you or I would ever want to sweep under the carpet wrongdoing by Sir Keir Starmer, by Boris Johnson, by Sir Ed Davey, or any of them. But we are obliged on public service broadcasting to give all of them a fair crack of the whip and report it in a balanced and impartial way. And my final point is to repeat what you said. What I cannot bear is the intrusion of amateur dramatics and laughs and sneers and sniggers uh, when they say, oh, yes, but number 10 says X, Y and Z. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, It's just juvenile. And back in the days of Burnett and Gaul and the greats like that and Brunson, it simply wouldn't have happened. I can't imagine Michael Brunson or Sandy Gaul doing that, certainly. Well, Brunson famously reduced Margaret Thatcher to tears by simply calmly quietly reminding her of what had happened and how friends in the cabinet had turned against her and they'd all lined up to to say, oh, no, you must stay. And then they turned their back on her and knifed her. He could have had, if it was now, according to these rules that I object to, that people seem to be abiding by, had a field day with her. He didn't. He asked calm, quiet, informed questions and sat back and listened. You mentioned the issue of the personal profile caused by social media. Is it not social media in itself? Because that drives this need for these gotcha moments, these two minutes of TV when MP or minister is reduced to a quivering wreck by a sneering interviewer. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I guess it's profile building. And again, the lates and greats who who I grew up with had huge profiles, but the ones with the with the greatest profiles didn't sink to this sort of nonsense to build that up. Uh, they got it because they were good. I mean, I can again, Burnett. It was often said privately that Burnett was very warm to the Tories, and he's now passed and gone. And I can confirm that that is the truth, as as someone who talked politics with him at great length, uh, but off the record between ourselves, and that's absolutely fine. But the night that Thatcher, again, we're going back a long way, but it makes my point that we're talking of a different era, uh, when 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 Thatcher didn't do well on the first ballot, uh, and John Sargent famously was on the steps of the embassy in Paris and what have you. The following evening, Burnett, friend of the Tories, turned on Ken Baker, then the chair of the Conservative Party, and said, the game's up. It's finished. She's gone. 
That's the mature, grown-up way of it. No sniggers, no giggles, no throwing back in the chair from Burnett. Straight question. Tough questions to somebody knew well and liked well. You're refusing to name names, aren't you, Alistair Stewart? I, I said to you when we were talking earlier that I don't... I've mentioned one because she's no longer at the BBC, uh, but with the caveat that I do admire her, and genuinely I do. And also, I tweeted quite recently that uh, I wasn't going to name names because I think that would be invidious, but it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a nuclear physicist to think who might he be talking about. People do watch television news and they will come to their own conclusions. I may be completely wrong. They may be lapping it up and loving it. But from my own impartial glance at social media, I think there are more with me uh, than with the other side of the argument. And what's your final piece of advice to them as a veteran broadcaster from years and years on ITN and now at GB News? What's your advice to, to these successors? Two things, if I may. And uh, people say, oh, yeah, you come, you're saying all of that from GB News. Ha, <laughs> impartiality, you're joking. We have a very clear deal with Ofcom, like LBC and others, that if you have balance across the whole schedule, then that's fine. Uh, and therefore, if I go down one particular road and Dan Wooten goes down another, that's fine. As long as Ofcom can look at it quietly and say over that 24 hour period, GB News was pretty balanced. And if we're not, they'll come down on us like a ton of bricks. I completely agree with that. My second piece of advice to those who are practicing in public service broadcasting would be to reread the broadcasting code as published by Ofcom. Remind yourself of your own excellent editorial guidelines, whether it's ITV News or the BBC, and adhere to them. People want to trust you again. People want to know that you are very well informed, but want to know that you are doing it for them, the audience and the viewer, and not for friends that you might have in high places. It's not about us. It's about our listeners and viewers. Alistair Stewart, thanks again for joining me on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. A pleasure. Anytime, Christopher. And you can see Alistair Stewart at work on GB News, Saturdays and Sundays, 12pm till 2pm. Now, parallels between Boris Johnson's current predicament within his own party and Conservative leaders' past have been around all week, even already on this podcast. In fact, there aren't many Tory leaders in the past decades who haven't faced some sort of questions over their leadership one of those was, of course, Sir John Major. And someone who remembers Sir John's tenure all too well is Charles Lewington. Now a big noise in the PR world, but back then, Director of Communications for the Tories. Charles Lewington, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Pleasure. Now, Charles, you uh, sent me a very amusing WhatsApp message after hearing me on the radio this week, in which you were slightly dismissive, weren't you, of so-called Tory rebels. You said that they always think that distancing themselves from an unpopular leader increases their chances of holding their seats. Instead, they end up working as public affairs manager for the Cat Protection League. This is a bit mean, isn't it? Well... First of all, apologies to cat lovers to <laughs> upset them, least of all Larry the Cat. Yes, well, Larry the Cat did tweet back, didn't he, when I put it on Twitter saying, and what would be wrong with that? Yeah, no, well, I thought it was quite reasonable. I thought we were going to get into a cat fight with him, but it was, it was okay. <laughs> no, my point was is that I lived through the horror story, which was the post-1997 landslide experience for the 178 Conservative MPs who lost their seat. 178 of them, one of the majorities that fell was an 18,500 majority. So, you know, when the country turns, very few Conservative MPs can really be sure that they're safe. There's no science around this. 
But my assumption has always been that uh, the disunity in the party probably cost about 50 of those seats. Gosh. The, you know, the party could have reduced the Blair majority down maybe below three figures, which would be more kind of understandable, really. And a lot of Tory MPs, they went into the election, no pictures of the Prime Minister on their election leaflets. They were taking different policy positions on Europe, somehow thinking that would mitigate the worst effects of the inevitable Labour swing. And there was absolutely no evidence that it did. And I think there was some research done at the time saying, you know, were those who took Eurosceptic positions in the 97 election more likely to save their seats? And I think the answer was a resounding no. So my point is that it's a fallacy for Tory MPs to somehow think that by voting now, no confidence vote against the Prime Minister. Somehow they can put that on an election leaflet and make the difference. I think particularly in Scotland. I think it's a ridiculous idea. And it's also quite dishonest as well, because they stood on Boris Johnson's election platform first time around. So, you know, what are they doing? They're suddenly airbrushing him out of the... And this is not a sort of pro-Johnson position. It's just simply making the point that it is a fallacy to think that if they put distance between themselves and a, and a temporarily unpopular Prime Minister can make all the difference. He hasn't had much of a chance because of the pandemic, obviously, and now he's plunging into a cost of living crisis. And obviously, there's Partygate, which is largely of number 10's own making. But nevertheless, they haven't really given him a chance to show his mettle and roll out his agenda in, uh, in a more comprehensive manner. And actually, the next session of Parliament is going to contain quite a lot of red meat. And if by then you've got uh, too many rebels thinking that, you know, it's all over by the shouting, then, you know, they aren't, they aren't going to get anything done. In your comment there, were you suggesting that uh, Tory MPs are slightly slightly jumped up in their own self-importance, if I can say that? Because you did say <laughs> they end up, in the truth, once out of Parliament, away from the portcullis house protection, they are ending up as, you know, a more lowly job, arguably, at the Cats Protection League. Is that what, what you're suggesting? Yeah, I mean, some of these rather sort of pompous... I'm not going to name any names. Oh, go on. It's just only you and me talking. There have been some quite pompous interventions from rebel grandees, you call them. And I hear them and I think, you know, uh, what are you going to say when you speak to the search consultant or the headhunter after the election? You're going to say, oh, you were a very distinguished politician. Actually, you rebelled against the government. I mean, what employer is going to employ a serial rebel? <laughs> I know. Have you, have you had many letters of, of no confidence in, in you at Hanover Communications, Charles Lewington? Well, uh, <laughs> don't for, fortunately, we don't have a 1922 committee which <laughs> can trigger a vote of no confidence uh, yes. in, in the leadership. It's, of a full, it's a big democracy there, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Maybe listen. somewhere there is a Graham Brady in the organisation who's like uh, plotting. I'm joking. There. Now, of course, listen, you, you, of course, were press secretary to John Major in the 1990s. Yeah. Lots of people nowadays are comparing the Boris Johnson situation, a kind of is it fourth term Tory government, with what John Major put up with in 92 to 1997. Are these comparisons right? Well, they are in the sense that come 2024, the Conservatives would have been in power for 14 years, albeit with the Liberal Democrats for five years. And it was 18 years in uh, the Tories being in power in 1997. The difference is, of course, that he does still have a substantial majority, whereas Major only, he started off in 92 with, was it 18 or something like that? Yeah, and it, yes, uh, a lot of whittled MPs away died. as they died, yes. Yeah, a lot of MPs died because heart disease was more prevalent amongst Conservative MPs than is now. So by the end of it, he'd whittled down to one or two or, th or three even, and then there were various defections. 
So it was knife edge and it was very it was very brittle and there was a substantive policy issue right at the heart of it, which of course there isn't on this occasion. And there's argument over direction of travel in certain areas and, and grumbles about immigration policy, but but nothing nothing that, that fundamental. So it's overblown then. I mean there's a feeling maybe that ideas are hard to come by. Yeah, I mean it's quite interesting hearing Michael Gove being challenged on the radio this morning, you know, Amal Rajan was saying, Look, look, Mr Gove, you've been in power for 12 years and this new right to buy policy for council house tenants it was in the 2015 manifesto and here we are in 2022 what's been happening and that increasingly will happen with radical policies and that's a one of the for the party that's one of the tragedies of covid because really we should have been doing all that in the first year and we could have done it with the authority of having won a thumping 80 seat majority behind us but that was all that all dissipated so you don't really sense this government is out of ideas. I mean, so the, the, the comparison with John Major is different because there was no central dividing line like Euroscepticism was in those days. I mean, there's more of a kind of consensus, isn't there, between Labour and the Tories about spending a lot and increasing taxes? Yeah. I mean, if you were to look at the broad priorities of the government, which is but ensuring the NHS recovers from COVID and it's run more efficiently, to curbing immigration controls, to dealing with the housing crisis that we have in this country. And looking after the vulnerable during uh, what I hope will be only a temporary cost of living crisis. Everyone's broadly supportive. And that was what's so interesting about, you know, the Penroses and the Jesse Normans of this world. Jesse Normans' letter was coruscating, but actually the, the, the differences were not hugely fundamental, to be honest, I didn't think. What's your advice to Boris Johnson? What, what, if you were in the room with him now, what would you be saying to him he needs to do? Well, concentrate on five things and define a new narrative around them leveling up is clearly not working it might even be deterring voters in the south who think that boris is only really caring about the north and also the leveling up agenda is getting in the way of the broader narrative so what five areas would you think of on, on your pledge card well immigration is one housing is one reforming the national health service is another cutting personal taxation is another yeah and the fifth one the fifth one is education there were sort of education slash culture wars. You know, I mean, I think a lot of sensible Tories read uh, some horror stories coming out of the education system, and I think that, that all that needs to be dealt with quite robustly. So it's not all over for Boris Johnson in the same way it was all over for John Major. No, I think it is all to play for. And he has got a united cabinet for the moment. On that note, Charles Lewington, former press secretary to John Major, and now a senior PR professional at Hanover Communications. Thank you for joining us this week on Troubles Politics. Thank you, Charles. Pleasure. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. I'd love to know your thoughts on what our guests have said today. Please email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me. We're at Choppers Podcast. Thank you to my guests this week, Tim Montgomery, Connor Burns MP, Alistair Stewart and Charles Lewington. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells, Giles Gear. Elliot Lampitt and Theodora Luludis. And as ever, thank you to you for listening. And for more from me, please do sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. It brings you Westminster Insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. Please sign up, telegraph.co.uk forward slash politics newsletter to see more of it. And be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out at 7pm on Fridays on the Telegraph's website and in Saturday's newspaper. And a reminder, as always, please do buy a copy 
of the Daily Telegraph if you can. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!